The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I practice as a geotechnical engineer for over 17 and a half years. And in addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first-generation college students. I focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and fields. By STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Michael Waisaki, PE, who is the president of Thatcher Foundations Incorporated. Michael will discuss some very interesting things, such as deep foundations, earth retention, marine construction, and safety considerations as a geotechnical specialty contractor. I've gotten to know Michael over the years at uh, several conferences, including the likes of Deep Foundations Institute. But before introducing our guest, I want to share with you the very first episode of This Week in Civil Engineering, also known as TWICE, will be published on September the 17th. TWICE is a 10 to 15 minute weekly audio and video podcast hosted by practicing civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers, bringing listeners the latest industry news. While it's important to stay well-rounded in the profession, none of us really have the time to keep up with all the news like we'd like to anymore. But soon, you won't have to worry about that due to TWICE. So please, check it out, www.twice.news. That's T-W-I-C-E dot news. And make sure to subscribe to the show to get your weekly updates. I'd like to formally introduce you to our guest, Dr. Michael Waisaki, PE. Michael Waisaki is the president of Thatcher Foundations Incorporated. Thatcher Foundations is a specialty contractor working in design, build, earth retention, pile driving, drilled foundations, and marine construction. Thatcher has built a reputation for innovative solutions to challenging deep foundation and shoring work. Michael received his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from the Citadel, his master's from MIT, and doctorate in geotechnical engineering from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where he was awarded both the Wilson and Peck Fellowships. His publications range from shore erosion to the effect of local soil conditions on earthquake motions to the capacity of deep foundations. He is the chairman of the Chicago Committee on High-Rise Buildings, a past chairman of the Driven Pile Committee of the Deep Foundations Institute, and the American Society of Civil Engineers, Geo Institute, Illinois section. And with that, let's jump right into our conversation with Michael. Michael, welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. We're honored to have you. How are you feeling, man? Uh, Jen, I'm feeling great. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. That's awesome. It's been a while since I've seen you, so it's pretty cool to kind of see you in this space. You know, we're in the COVID pandemic, so we can't physically be at a DFI conference or something like that, but we're sitting here on Zoom, and it feels like I'm sitting in front of you, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is, and it's good that we've had personal experience in the back and in the past and everything and have a good relationship. It does make this kind of thing easier. <laughs> fun anyway. 
Yeah, neither one of us is in broadcast journalism, right? But it might feel like it in geotechnical engineering. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's tough. All right. But Michael, in your own words, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do on a daily basis at Thatcher? As a president company, I'm you know, responsible for strategic thinking and such, but that's you know not day-to-day, right? That's something I'll wander off to with, the, with my brother and the leaders of the company. But uh, you know, day-to-day, it's really whatever needs to be done. I've got a pretty diverse background growing up into this business. So, you know, if we don't have enough work, it's I'm supporting my brother in the sales team. If we've got a lot of work or some really complicated things or whether they're problems that are people or unions or engineering or whatnot, I'll go help jobs are going. I even get dragged into accounting type issues now and again, but I do everything I can to stay out of that. Or really what I like to do is engineer. And we have design build engineering in-house and that group is fun to work with and they're they're better behaved soils and walls and structures do what they're told a little better yeah exactly (laughs) the rest of the people in the industry Uh, that's pretty cool and you said you and your brother right yeah my brother john and i work together and have grown up in the business Um, mr thatcher started the business in 46 my dad came in the 50s and took over in the 70s and john and i have been running it really since the late 90s early 2000s so growing up, you knew that that's where you were going to be working or it was, I want to avoid it. And then I end up in it. I hear different stories for, you know, what, yeah. what's your story? Yeah, it's a complicated roller coaster ride of uh, <laughs> family relationships and everything. I, I remember building a shed in our backyard with my dad and my brother. And, and my main lesson out of that was never go to work with these guys. <laughs> kill each other. Okay. Um, but, you know, you take the good with the bad. And, and really, you know, my brother and I are very different. And that yin and yang is great for Thatcher. You know, he's pretty structured and detail-oriented and, and there, and I come from a different thing, and, and two of me would be tough and two of him would be tough, but us <laughs> together have really helped take the company to a different place. Yeah, I didn't always know, but I came around to it gradually. When you're at work, you're still family, but you're probably not. Like, what are the dynamics there? That is challenging to separate, and people will think in either direction. Like, there'll be times I have no idea what's going on on a personal level versus this, or it's because we're brothers, I think we both know everything that the other person knows. Okay. <laughs> one of us, that's cool. That's all I need. It's a different kettle of fish. You know, miss having dad around. Now, he was great to his perspective, and that's a completely another from such a different era, right, that he'd be 89 now. He's good, but old, has different levels of experience and different approaches. So I really enjoyed working with him once I grew up and got old enough to appreciate how good he was. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. It's amazing what can happen when you're building a shed, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it can steer you one way or it can, you know, boomerang you back. So right. it's pretty awesome. And I understand you attended the Citadel. How was the military college experience? Like, how does that impact one's career? How did it impact your growing up? It was great for me. It was perfect. It was great timing. I needed structure at that time. And people who know me pretty well um, were surprised that I'll drive in a military environment. But I loved it because I did have structure would take care of all the day-to-day things you got to get done and allow you to have time for the be successful in what you have to do. And then you can go have fun or do creative things or do whatever else you're interested in. You know, And, and just the things you learn there, as opposed to as I went up into higher, into graduate studies um, at MIT in Illinois, where I'm more focused on the academics, this is such a well-rounded thing where they're pushing just life and how to live it, ownership. You got to own your decisions. You got to be responsible for what you do. When things go wrong under your watch, you've only got one answer is, sir, no excuse, sir. 
move on to the next thing and let's do it better next time. So, I, you know, you really, the lessons from the Citadel have tend to apply more than some of the things I learned in theoretical soil mechanics. You think about geotechnical engineering, we talk a lot about what goes right, but there's a lot of things that don't go right. And that concept of owning it and not making excuses, well, you can cut out a lot of the nonsense if we have that kind of mindset. So I definitely see the wisdom in that. It really is that what you learn out of going through the, those life lessons, they, they really help you out or as things get really tough because they also stress you to an yeah. extreme there. And that's so like <laughs> when things start blowing up around a job site or with people <laughs> with emotions, it's like, what, that's all you got? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, I can remember as a young engineer, it's like, you know, in a job site, you, you're just, well, personally, it's like, you're just scared of everything, right? And then as you get a little more seasoned, it's like, so hold up, the worst you could do is scream at me because I'm not going to approve this subgrade. It's like, yeah, we're going to be okay. You're going to do it again, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's cool. That's cool. But going through your bio, which is awesome, by the way, I see that you received the award for both the Wilson and the Peck Fellowships. Congratulations. That's, that's awesome, man. Receiving fellowships like that, how did it benefit your career in the geotechnical space? Primarily allowed me to stay in academics as long as I wanted to without going into debt like so many people do these days um, in higher education. So it provides the financial side is very useful with the fellowship itself is, um, you know, this is back in the 90s when uh, Professor Peck was still alive and yeah. he would come to Champaign to give a lecture. And I, I as the Peck fellow, I would go to lunch with him and... Yeah just get to share some of his experiences. He was such a wonderful guy. I got him, I convinced him to come to Chicago to talk to our local ASCE geotechnical group. I remember once just sitting in a lunch where I said, you know, how in the world can you stay up on all this stuff? With conferences constantly and you're such an expert in so many different levels and how in the world can you? And he said, uh, Michael, uh, you need to know what not to read. I love it. I love it. Such sage advice, right? <laughs> Master. Oh my goodness. I remember when I was in Illinois and he was, Professor Mesrud still bring him to give a lecture. And I remember going to Papa Dell's with him and we're eating it. I was like, man, this is like a dream. I'm here with like a geotechnical rock star, right? But uh, just sage advice, <laughs> sage advice. He was the best. And with your background, I mean, you have went to world-class institutions, you got a PhD and you're working at a company like Thatcher. I mean, did you have any desire to be a professor at one time? I mean, how does... I loved what I was doing at the time. And I, during graduate school is when I did commit to Thatcher um, that I was coming in this direction. I didn't know if some, you know, maybe in my, after some number of years as a contractor, I would want to go back into academics. Um, Mm -hmm. It was certainly a consideration. You don't need a PhD to drive piles. But again, I loved what I was doing. I wasn't going into debt. I enjoyed it. And the peripheral benefits of you know, some of the dynamic analysis I was studying towards the end has been very helpful in analyzing deep foundations in Chicago. And, you know, so I was still learning things that wound up being of great use to the company moving forward. So again, there weren't really wasn't a downside. So we never know. Uh, I still could have another career as a professor someday. You have many publications. I've seen you at a number of conferences. You also have a paper on the accuracy of methods of predicting Axial capacity of deep foundations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, that sounds like something that's really awesome for somebody who's putting piles in the ground, you know? Well, there's a, a handful of different deep foundations that have worked with towards the accuracy. I've studied a lot of load tests and measurements. And 
how well we can predict things or not is uh, needs to be well understood. So like to be a really good geotechnical engineer, you have to pay attention to significant figures. You know, you have to you yeah. can't tell them that the undrained shear strength of the clay is 2.7489. That makes you a bad engineer. <laughs> exactly. And Nobody's going to take you seriously. Half or three. Yeah. Two yeah. And a half three. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good number. And, and to not communicate a false sense of accuracy. Yeah. Um, and so how good are we at nailing this kind of thing? And then putting it to work as we, on every job, looking at different types of deep foundations of or earth retention systems, of what's a way to go? I haven't published that much. I haven't written that much, particularly lately, as I've been tied up. I, I do give presentations and lectures uh, more so these days. But again, as my kids are getting older and they have a little more time starting to show up, I, I do hope to write more. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. And I guess the reality is that every pile that goes in the ground is another data point. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You look at the uh, where the tips are landing versus where the borings are in the end. You say, wow, now I know exactly where the top of rock is, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes that old uh, expression that a driven pile is a tested pile is very useful. That those <laughs> piles get smarter than the engineers at some point at finding that rock. They really do. They really do. I mean, they'll tell you when they're home, you know? Absolutely. When you look throughout your career, I, I think this is very important for the younger listeners. There are so many terms that are just very important and one could say this is strategic terminology in the geo industry, but a lot of this you don't learn when you're in school. You learn when you're kind of out there. But when you start to think about things like building codes and union agreements, I mean, how do you understand this stuff? Like, where do you learn it? Some people say the school of hard knocks, but where do you learn the importance of these things as a geotechnical uh, professional? Yeah, you're exactly right. That, that is the stuff you're going to get outside of school, not, not much in school, because when the terminology's used to advantage. I mean, in a pejorative sense, if you're trying to, I'm making up something to, to kind of skirt around a union issue or a skirt around a building code. You know, if I call it, if I change the name of the product and now it's something that doesn't, that isn't in the building code, I can do whatever the heck I want. Uh, and that's actually to a great advantage that our friends in the uh, ground improvement community have taken great advantage of. If it's a pile and you attach it to a pile cap into the structure, it's bunch of set of rules that have been around for a very long time that are hard to change. Mm -hmm. We call it a controlled modulus column or a, um, you know, something else and don't attach it. Now I don't need a factor of safety of two. I only need a factor of safety of one and a half. Okay. Some engineers uh, like to do And what that really says is our factor of safety of two in in my mind is maybe a little conservative, right? Um, Mm -hmm. If you actually have testing around, it's hard to get past that. And you know, when we say like we were talking about with driven piles that are so reliable, we put in all types of deep foundations. So even a like an auger cast pile that would all, if you decide engineering wise that you're going to have 60 footers, you're going to have a few hundred 60 footers out there, no matter what the ground's doing. Right. Whereas with a driven pile, you're going to drive them till they find the material you're looking yeah. for, at least in my area. Yeah. It's through everywhere. We keep the same factors of safety, even though those two systems might not have the same level of reliability of, of 60 feet. Yeah. So like those kind of things. Um, now, if you change the name entirely, I'll say I can do factor safety at two or two and a half. I'm going to go with one and a half because I feel pretty good about this thing. And there are no rules in the code. So I'm a little suspicious of some when you change the name of something to get a whole big set of numbers. You really have to think through what you're doing. Um, Makes sense. I, I hope the industry uh, gets better at responding to some of those challenges. And then I guess another thing when you come, you know, when you start to think about you know, factor safety, a lot of it is, you know, construction uncertainty. And if it's brand new versus if it's been around for 100 years, the amount of data that you have and how reliable it is, these are you know, things that come into play as well. 
And I'll say that is unfortunately exactly backwards because of the wow. way the code process works. So yeah. I mean, stuff that's stuck in the code, it's in the code. And you can yeah. tweak it. And there's a lot of work done with the, the Pile Driving Contract Association, Deep Foundations Institute, and ASCE's Geotechnical Vision and, and ADSC getting together in this geo coalition to advance the IBC. Dale Beggers has led that effort for years with, mm-hmm. with Lori Simpson and Dan Stevenson. And some of those folks have done such a great amount of work to move things forward in a positive direction for the IBC. But yet there are gigantic inconsistencies of yeah. stuff that are hard to, hard to pull out. You know, if you take a pipe and put it in the ground, somehow you get 35% of yield. If you yeah. test it, you get up to 50% of yield. But if you chop it up in pieces and bolt it back together and wrap a helix around the end of it, you get 60% or 50% <laughs> of ultimate. It doesn't make any kind of sense. And they're in the same table with wow. the of rules. How do you get around that or, or pull that kind of thing out? I, I don't know. That is, uh, it is certainly a challenge. I like the way you explain that. Honestly, I think especially for some of the younger listeners, they pull out a table and they say, okay, I use this factor and I do my design, right? But trying to think about, you know, what's the history here and what does this actually mean? I think is so important for a geotechnical engineer. So important. And it is to really know these rules aren't a uniform (laughs) level of reliability, right? And an example of really what you're saying that's backwards is some of the really old stuff is stuck. Some of the new stuff, when you give it a new name, it gets its own set of rules because you just made it up and the code officials have to make something up. You know? And I, I mean, for bars, reinforcing bars, an old standard piece of rebar at 60 KSI, it's tried and true. It's been around forever. We know what it does. It's very reliable. It's, it's not going to do funny things. When Dewey Dag started bringing these high strength bars in and going up to 80 KSI and 150 KSI, it winds up something of a brittle structure at some point where it can like break like glass. We've had tension breaks in two places, which sounds impossible. Kind of blows up in a little stress area or something. And, you know, it's just something that behaves a little differently and isn't as newer. We get to go to 60% of ultimate on those bars as a standard. That's what you design to. And mm-hmm. you can test them to 80% of ultimate, 1.33 times that design load. Mm-hmm. 80% of ultimate, which actually equals about your yield stress. The rules that are standardly followed and out there, we can test them all the way to yield. No worries. Now, when I'm telling you when we're doing that, I am very nervous about that. We're covering things up. And we try not to go all the way up there. Okay. Um, and when we do, we're looking around. If something does break, if something does go, what are you going to do? If I'm following the rules with standard rebar and things, not too worried about most of that stuff. So it's like you said, uh, Jared, the new stuff is um, you got to be concerned about it for more than one reason. Cause yeah. Rules that are less restrictive frequently. And when we talk about construction techniques, I mean, so you're responsible for putting deep foundations in the ground, drilled, driven, auger, but you're also done a lot of supportive excavation or earth retention as well, right? That's definitely what our engineering side does the most of. Right? Okay. It's, uh, a lot of the deep foundations will, you know, you're going to design one pile and that's good for, I mean, whereas <laughs> earth retention systems require a great deal of design work and We've optimized a lot of techniques along those lines. What are some techniques that, you know, a young engineer should be thinking about when they're saying, I'm trying to think about how to design. So what are the things they should be thinking about? I would mostly say leave a lot up to the contractors or be willing, you know, the best engineers I know have good relationship with contractors who really lead a lot of the industry of innovation. And, you know, the rules are constantly changing. Again, whether they're 
you know, union rules or material rules or things that change the economics of something versus just the ground changing from this spot to that spot and some of those sort of things, or just the difference between labor. You know, so the, the different types of defoundations or earth retention can change drastically over time and, and that even through the course of months or something. So it's yeah. not like there's a right answer out there. You got to weigh a lot of factors and rely on reliable contractors. There's a contractor that, say, for example, only does Argocast piles. He's going to find a solution for Argocast piles. <laughs> exactly. The question you ask him. <laughs> Just a little bit of bias there, right? <laughs> Someone who's a little has some versatility uh, and can come up with an answer. I'd recommend, but so if I only sell red paint, I think your shed should be red, right? <laughs> hey, red's not that bad, Jared. That's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> no, you, you make a really good point. I think that, um, you know, as a young engineer, one of the things I really started to do is to, to talk to contractors, to get a better understanding of what's available. Because my worst nightmare is, you know, having a recommendation that doesn't align with what's available locally. You know, I'm specking a pipe that you can only get from like one small city somewhere. And it's like, oh my goodness, why did I do that? Right? So it makes a difference. But I would caution or I would sort of add to that. There are engineers who are too worried about being too perfect on some stuff where they're not, you know, whether it's an ego thing or um, a something of like value engineering is horrible. You know, if a contractor has a better idea, you know, I'm not receptive to that or it makes me look bad or something. And it's like, hey, no, you made a good sound recommendation. That makes some sense. But hey, I've got a new angle on that. I've got some approach that I think will be that'll help save risk or reliability or money or time or something rather. And hey, how about this? I would encourage, I mean, that's really, um, in my area, it's very well accepted that, that you know, mm -hmm. our geotechnical engineers and structural engineers aren't overly sensitive to correct engineered ideas. And, they're, and they'll even put in the reports, try one of these and yeah, off the market, <laughs> they're pretty good about it. One of the good things is that you're seeing it for the first time, right? It's like, we've been dealing with this. We have the tunnel vision. We, we think that this is the right set of recommendations. You go, you go, you go, you go. And then you're looking at it for the first time. You say, you know what? I think we should try this. And I'm like, it's a pretty good idea. Because in the end, we want to make sure we get the right project solution. And it takes a lot of people to figure that out. So it definitely makes a difference. We kind of talked about it before, but codes and regulations and how it addresses the design. I mean, how much do you get into that? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, it, it really dictates things with deep foundations, how much you can load a micropile or a driven pile or something. You know, what, what stress levels are there? The structural side, as well as frequently the geotechnical side, but primarily the structural side is called out in the codes. On the earth retention, the, the sport of excavation, it, since it's a temporary thing frequently, it can be a lot more of the Wild West. Of, you're more performance-based. If it starts to move, you're in trouble. What type of support systems are you guys doing? I mean, soldier pond lagging, or we're doing secant surveys. Soldier pond lagging. Uh, it's sheet piling is the majority of what we do. The, the soldier pond lagging were a lot more common in the past when there were you know two types of sheet pile. You know, PZ twenty seven <laughs> and PZ twenty two. Yeah. <laughs> and now with all the cold form sections as well as a lot of the hot, you know, there, there's such a wide variety of different sheet piles that you, know, you can be really economical in that direction. And when you can, you'd rather have it. Just the whole process of putting lagging boards in yeah. opens up another level of risk. They're opening for movements, allowable for movements. You know, it's just not tight to the backside very much. So if the economy isn't there, you just shouldn't do it, right? If, if the economy yeah. is the same, you're going to take sheet piles pretty much every time. You're absolutely right. And then you guys are doing external braces, like tiebacks, or are you doing internal struts? Yeah, a lot of both. 
a lot of uh, the Chicago area is deep, soft clay. There's nothing to anchor to. Yeah. Without really crazy, steep, long anchors. Sometimes around the cholera of the city or in northwest Indiana and some of the industrial settings, there's great anchor material. And again, sort of the, the same thing is for the same price, everyone would prefer external because it you know opens up the excavation. But we're still, for whether it's for property line reasons or geotechnical reasons or whatever else, we wind up internally more commonly than soil anchors. And are you using sheet piles when you got buildings next door? I mean, that could be aggressive, right? We're good at being aggressive. We're good at the vibrations themselves of trying to know what are the vibrations that really matter and don't matter. And, you know, getting high frequency are the vibrations that don't travel through ground very well and don't resonate with structures very well and get damped out and disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, it's the low frequency will, will resonates with the ground and really affects the structures. And so now with the modern technology, a high frequency variable moment vibro will get up to speed to... For us, uh, high frequency means 2,000 RPM okay. uh, clay. And so it'll get all the way up there, and then it'll uh, make the eccentrics eccentric. You know, then it starts mm-hmm. vibrating already at that speed. So yeah. it doesn't have the startup and shutdown uh, problems. I remember, what, 15 years ago, every sheep pile job, you know, you it's like that starting up at the lawnmower and turning off at the lawnmower. It's like that was just like the world was falling apart, right? It's a lot, but you know, you still, you know, it's not for every situation. We also have a hydraulic pressing device where we okay. can no vibration install sheet piles. I mean, nice. that doesn't work any, you know, just anywhere. If it were that easy, people would have done it a long time ago. So you can get sheet piles in anyway, you know, and sometimes if that, that one doesn't work, we've done you know, maybe a, a secant pile or an excavation where you're, we don't do slurry walls ourselves, but those can be the, if you're in a spot, you can't press sheet piles in or it's a, or it's a, you need a big, very stiff wall, then you're going to be drilling or digging it. And in your secant wall, I guess you would also have that double over as the foundation wall or you have at it truly times, as temporarily? At times, most of ours have been just temporary where we've done some internal ones. That's what it really, what it should be. Yeah. I think it is more common for the big, deep ones with the monster equipment these days that you mm-hmm. can you know, try and reuse that. Maybe there's just a facade over the front covered up. There's one spot, there's an excavation in Chicago where they put the parking garage right in. There's stuff coming, <laughs> old <laughs> concrete and dirt peeling off the walls. And they think it's <laughs> kind of cool and industrial. I'd, I wouldn't park a nice car down there. In Chicago, Land, I understand you've done uh, several marine construction projects, kind of, I guess, in the upper Midwest, right? What have you learned from those projects? I do ask a lot of questions like, why did I get mixed up in that? <laughs> <laughs> it does, it introduces a whole new set of challenges. Yeah. Um, in particular up here with the weather and whatnot, as things start freezing and ice comes around getting into barges, we don't have tides, but lake levels still move. People think of them as being perfectly stable, but they're, yeah. you know, they wander around from hour to hour versus season to season in the neighborhood of a few feet. We do a lot of work on the river. You know, a general contract said, hey, this doesn't look too hard and rent it apart. <laughs> Put this beautiful new $400,000 backhoe on it. Yeah. And, and over the weekend, there were big storms. And all of a sudden, the river can pop up from five feet. They were parked under a bridge. They destroyed the backhoe. I don't know how much damage they did to the bridge. Wow. So, you know, you're doing your subsurface investigation and you see the water level is. You have to remember it doesn't stay at that level, right? Absolutely. But things change. Yeah, and knowing where that zero zero is and knowing what datum you're using. Again, this is, you know, commonplace for us, but for, you know, the younger listeners, these are things you have to think about. It's a lot. 
It is, you know, and it, it moves the whole industry in another way that's kind of interesting. Like the level of Lake Michigan, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron are one lake hydrogeologically. Like they're attached enough that there's only four lakes from an engineering perspective, okay. Great Lakes. We've set six straight records for the highest level that Lake Michigan has ever been at in the last hundred something years since we've had recordings. You know, and this happened back in 1986, 85, 86, 87. These are the records we're breaking primarily. And which inspired a lot of legislation, a lot of work, because the bluffs are going in. There are some mm -hmm. multimillionaires hanging over the bluff <laughs> who uh, would like to change the rules and, and reinforce things. That, you know, or you let nature wander back and forth as they want. As the higher lake levels will chew into the bluffs and take away extremely valuable property. And so that kind of thing went. And the lake levels drop. We just a few years ago we were setting records for historic low levels. So that makes all the beaches great. But then up on the rivers, you know, that same amount of water is holding the dock wall up. Now wow. all of a sudden the free length is much different than wow. you thought of or planned for. Now the dock walls are falling over, the low, <laughs> low lake levels. So it wanders around and can change things. So right now, I mean, we're, we don't do a lot of residential work. We've been doing some residential work lately to help protect some of these bluffs. Boy, boy that's a tough one from a lot of other reasons that are non-technical. It's interesting. I remember some years back, you know, in the Northeast, we were talking about, you know, sea level rise and how do we deal with water infiltration and flood barriers. But then on the West Coast, we were talking about droughts, right? And it's like totally different type of challenges on the two extremes. And from a geotech, there are opportunities for us, obviously, but there's solutions that are out there. We just have to figure them out. So, Michael, before we go to our, our intimate segment, one more question for you. What excites you about geotechnical engineering today and in the future? Today is what we're talking about, that it is such a dynamic field. There's different problems all the time. There's so many different solution techniques um, and so many reasons that these different things are useful or valuable in different spots. The level of instrumentation and the, the, the data we can get to learn from, whether it's measuring for testing results of individual piles or during yes. construction techniques or measuring flow rates to bring up the quality of some of the drilled and grouted piles, that there's so many opportunities out there. It's, it's now it's harvesting that data and using mm. it effectively and not just getting buried in miles of, <laughs> of paper or data uh, on the clogging up your hard drive. That's a challenge, but the solution techniques and the, the analytics are pretty cool for right now. For the future, they, that'll all continue to develop, and, and, but I think we have some great techniques, and a lot of that is happening pretty well. What excites me is the people. You know, the people who are attracted to geotechnical engineering and geotechnical construction are a pretty cool set of people. You know, they're, yeah. they're dealing with them. I'm going to test this one, you know, a few hockey pucks worth of material and characterize <laughs> this entire deposit. And, yeah. And make recommendations on how to hold up your structure. That's pretty bold. You know, this isn't precision cookbook stuff, right? It's, there's some level of creativity. There's some level of something and the kind of people that are attracted to geotechnical engineering, the kind of people I want to hang out with and I look forward to working with in the future and spending time. It's the people is the future. Thank you so much. We're going to come back in just a moment and close this out with Michael on our career factor safety end segment. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for our career factor of safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. 
And actually, we were talking about factor safety just earlier today. And today, of course, we're speaking with none other than Dr. Michael Waisaki. Michael, the work that you do and that you've done in the past, it can be dangerous. I mean, geotechnical engineering contracting is not simple and it's very challenging. And when we think about, you know, the usual safety protocols that engineers have to follow, I imagine that you've built in a factor safety in your career in managing and giving yourself a way to make sure that you're safe when you're construction sites and also for your employees. Is there anything you could share in that regard for, you know, folks that are getting ready to go out into the field of things they need to think about from a factor safety standpoint and safety? Jed, you know, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in a business like this and with a I learned a great deal from my father, and it came from Mr. Thatcher before him, of the safety culture here in my company has always been very high. Dad was one of the founding members of Chicago Construction Safety Council. From a very young age, I was aware of what's there. We've taken things beyond what's there, but it, it helps when you came from one of my dad's favorite expressions was, we cared about safety back when OSHA was just a town in Wisconsin. Comes from awesome. working with people, man. There's families. There's, you know, I was looking through some old pictures for our website recently, and I just couldn't believe how many people in the photographs retired from Thatcher. Wow. Uh, we've got fourth generation people here wow, uh, currently powerful. working. There's a we have a, a mechanic, really a drill operator now, who's our first fourth generation guy in the company. Because of that, it's like yeah, safety. <laughs> really, we don't want to see people losing appendages or danger enough business that people die mm-hmm. if you're not paying attention to this. We're, we're 28 months now without a recordable incident. Here wow. that. It is completely ingrained within our team, our forces here, that everybody gets it and they're not afraid to speak up and straighten people out. When there's, they're including, um, for a third generation type, I've had a few of my kids working here this summer. Wow. And they've, uh, <laughs> they've come back and said, wow, Mr. Cooper really got mad at me today, Dad. <laughs> I thought it was safety related, right? Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> Get off that cell phone, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing the great insights that you have with us. And thank you for your service to the engineering community. You've shared some great information and advice to the listeners, especially the younger listeners. And my question for you is, how can the listeners find you? It's the best way for them to get in contact with you. You can find me probably easily through the Deep Foundations Institute. Maybe I'll become the virtual president of that. I don't know. <laughs> virtually <laughs> hand the gavel over here at our annual meeting this year. They'll email um, it to you. <laughs> but through Thatcher Foundations, our company Thatcher Foundations, you know, it's thatcherfoundations.com is our okay. complicated website. There's a way to reach me through all that. So yeah, I look forward to helping out and love to talk with the, the, the geotechnical community. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode six, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned in this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.